0: Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Last week, after the show finished, I sat down in the studio with actors Erin Jean Norville and Nikki Shields, who are performing in. The Sydney Theatre Company production, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is presented by the Michael Castle Group as part of Rising originally, but it has had its season extended all the way through until the 7th of August, which is pretty remarkable for a, a, a piece of theatre to run for... For that long, it opened in June, running through to the 7th of August. Now, that's uh, the the final extension of the season, as I believe, uh, in the Playhouse at Arts Centre Melbourne. Now, there's been a lot of hype around the picture of Dorian Gray after it originally opened in Sydney a couple of years ago, and now having seen it twice, once with Erin Jean Norval performing uh, in the lead role, and well, as in all the roles, I should say, um, and having seen it again with Nikki Shields uh, performing all 26 characters. It really does live up to the hype. It's a a rare and remarkable production based on Oscar Wilde's only novel, uh, a a gothic masterpiece which has really, I guess, permeated popular culture in a way. Uh, Even people who've never read The Picture of Dorian Gray or never seen uh, a uh, a film adaptation of it, for example, are familiar with some elements of the central story. But we'll talk about that in a moment because uh, we're going to hear the interview I recorded last week with Erin Jean Norval, aka EJ, and Nikki Shields talking all about the picture of Dorian Gray. Erin Jean Norval, Nikki Shields, it's lovely to have you both in the studio and congratulations to both of you on your performance not only as Dorian Gray, but as 25 other characters, which is just daunting and terrifying for me as a non-actor to think about. EJ, we'll start with you. What was the original attraction of playing not only Dorian Gray but all the other characters in this production?
1: Um, I think think initially it was... It was that I knew that the the people that were asking me, and Kip Williams, our director, and and the creative team around um, Kip and myself were people that I uh, am always excited to be around and am always intimidated by their creative spirit. And so there was a lot of... A bedrock of immense amount of trust um, because I knew the thing itself would be daunting. And then the idea of playing um 26 versions of of essentially um shapes of our good and bad sides of ourselves shapes of our humanity I think that was the thing that I really um, wanted to sink my teeth into I love character work I love inhabiting different shapes of my my own identity and and the idea of play with the bedrock of trust and joy with the people around me felt um Yeah, pretty. I was pretty hungry to
0: partake. And Nikki, for you, you've been brought in at a later date, so after the original run uh, as the kind of the alternative performer, so much more than just an understudy, for example. But what's it like to enter a show that is already made like this, already set out and constructed, where you have to inhabit roles that have been created by another performer? It's
2: incredibly uh, exciting and equally intimidating. I remember I I saw the original incarnation of the show in 2020 and was completely spellbound by the theatrical illusion of it and um, the conception of the show. And so I, I... I got the phone call and sort of thought back to that time and um, was immediately hungry to be a part of understanding how it worked from the inside and um, joining the family, as EJ likes to say.
0: (laughs) How does it work? Uh, A question for both of you, because having now seen the production twice, with with uh, each of you playing the role on, on the different nights I attended, <laughs> I'm so conscious that I'm not only watching a work of theatre, mm. uh, which is theatre combined with technology, I'm watching a dance with technology. It's, it feels choreographic in the way uh, you are working with the stagehands, with the the film team who are shooting it live as it unfolds, uh, with so many marks to hit, so many presumably uh, conscious uh, conscious thoughts in your own mind of going, right, I've got three seconds to get from here to there for the, the next angle or the next shot or whatever. Talk to us about that aspect of the production, how it's made. and Because and, from an audience point of view, it looks overwhelming.
1: Mm. I mean, honestly, um, it feels often feels overwhelming as a performer as well. I mean, the galaxy of marks that we have on our black stage <laughs> is... Quite extraordinary. It's quite a, a beautiful thing because I know that they, um, there's not, you, you know, we have to hit a mark, and one millimeter this way or that way um, will ruin a shot potentially. Um, so it's like between magic and mayhem all the time, and and we, we, um, both myself and Nikki in our very various performances, but also the the entire team have to. Um, kind of step this tight, tight rope of um, of two hours, and and it is it, it does feel like a dance, but it also feels um, like an orchestral kind of. There's musicality in it as well. I think that comes from Oscar Oscar Wilde and his text. It's so rhythmic that we all are kind of at times breathing and shifting together, and and um, and so there's this symbiosis uh, um, you know, that we all kind of um, hook into, and, and that can sometimes be deeply uh, electrifying, but at the, at the same time, intimidating, always very intimidating. <laughs>
2: Yeah, just to pick up on the dance and the orchestral nature of it, uh, uh, as we go through, I feel like there is a deep sense of uh, ensemble practice at the centre of this show. And it's not, it's sort of the illusion of a one performer show, but there is this um, dance ensemble or orchestra together playing uh, their parts. And Uh, constantly tinkering with the technicalities to improve the show. And because it's so immense in its time um, and length, uh, you know, you perfect one section and then another little section of the overture falls away and so you have to tinker this over here. So it is a a constant um, maintenance of the ensemble that um, brings the illusion to life altogether.
0: If we talk about Oscar Wilde's novel, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, and, yes, I have my battered little paperback copy here so <laughs> I, I took with me to Paris and sat by Oscar's grave reading in *In homage back in 2005. <laughs> well, uh, um, uh, where's the, the, the bit I want? Uh, all art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. That's Oscar's introduction to the revised novel. Mm. Um, talk to us about the surface and the symbol of Dorian Gray as a as a story on the surface it's the it's a gothic novel about somebody who is effectively selling their soul to remain young and beautiful forever and how that plays out but as we watch this contemporary production there's so much more that the work is about both visual and beneath the surface so perhaps uh, both of you talk to us about the themes of the novel and how you feel they play out in the stage production of Dorian Gray?
1: Well, yeah, so um, Oscar Wilde wrote it in 1890 um, and somehow he he wrote something that feels even more kind of, um, like, prevalent and... um, cutting in terms of the questions that uh, uh, that we are asking today as a modern kind of society um, I think so questions like what is the moral responsibility of the individual do we have a conscience um, do we have a soul do uh, what impact um, do we have on, our, on the world and what impact do other people have upon us? And then the question of technology and how technology is used in the piece, mm-hmm. how that, um, with that, you know, in those questions, um, the idea of how technology impacts upon our identity and how we use technology to um, impact the world around us and the people around us and how do we integrate technology into the idea of uh, a soul. I mm. think that that is questions that are obviously just everywhere all the time, but very rarely do we actually, do I have, I ever sat down and go, is my mobile phone a part of my soul? <laughs> how, you know, it, how does it, how actually do I use this thing? Am I aware that it is um, an extension of my identity? I use mm. it to curate, to conceal, to... Um, you know, to to dis to disappear myself, or to to engorge myself, and what um, what does that do to my authentic self? Uh, what is real and unreal when I think about being so interfaced with this um, this piece of uh, technology? Um, and so, so I think that uh, the way that technology is used in the show really does play in in that territory. It makes us kind of see. See those things both symbolically and on the and on the surface how we play mm. with technology to to shift the surface of identity, but um, the symbolism of what that means is actually really quite deeply profound and um, and you know and and quite violent um, and and scary when you actually think about the consequences of that, um, the moral responsibility of yourself and then yourself with your mobile phone in the world then yourself online and. Um, what is the repercussions of that as we move forward in the world and as technology gets closer and closer to to being a part of our humanity?
2: Mm. The the following line of that preface uh, that Oscar has where he says, it is the spectator and not life that art really um, reflects. Uh, In some ways, I feel like this production has brought the... Um, the moral questions that he has um, he's asking in the original novella into the twenty first century century via via mobile phones and technology, and I like to think of the production as holding a mobile phone up to the up to the spectator rather than a, a mirror, because in some ways. Um, that's what our contemporary world has become, and especially around the, um, the, sim- the sorry the themes of influence in in the piece and the the contemporary idea of the influencer, mm. there is this um, this quality of Lord Henry that um, changes Dorian into something that perhaps is not his um, innate character and I feel like this is what we are seeing um and are overwhelmed with as um on social media platforms Mm -hmm. and um the idea of the self as image and the fractured self and um that that is kind of changeable from day to day depending on our whims and moods and that's very much at the centre of um what Dorian is exploring in in the piece.
0: One of the things that delights me about the play, and now, as I say, having seen it twice, the fact that there is so much complexity in it, uh, it's amazing that it only runs for two hours. It could... To do just full justice to the novel, for example, I could easily see a, a four-hour version unfolding. For example, so in many ways, it's, it's such a deft piece of adaptation mm. and a remarkable production because it does explore and unpack so much in what is realistically a relatively sparse running time. Mm.
1: Totally. I mean, the first um, one of the first developments or workshops we had. I, you know, I read the text and it um, the. Kip's first kind of one of his edits are adaptations. It was eight, nine hours long. Um, And that's like from the however many hours that it took to read the novella out loud when I first read it. Um, And so Kip has done a really incredible job to distill um, the the text in such a way. Um, And in another way, I think technology... And the way that the, the pillars of the piece, the way that we've made... We've built basically a new form um, in, in, in this show um, has helped to kind of further and further distill the very kind of p- pillars and moral questions in the piece. But, yeah, it is, um, it is quite a feat that it's only two hours, though it does feel quite long at the same time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> now, EJ, you've worked with Kit before... Uh, and you just referenced the idea of creating a new theatrical form with this production. Talk to us a little bit about Kip and his love of screen and film work, which he has incorporated quite a lot in some of his theatre.
1: Yes, so um, Kip and I started collaborating when we did a Shakespeare together, actually, back in 2013. Um, and then from what from my experience um, of witnessing Kip grow, he's... He's looked to find more a more a dynamic, whether it's in his theatrical productions or, or now more working with screens, to try to unpack the psychology of of um, the works that he's um, he's exploring and I think because screens are so Prevalent in our psychological space. I think that's often why he um, uses screen to expo- to explore some of the undercurrents of a work. And um, the amazing thing with the amazing thing that we did in this piece is that th- I think that this is the most integrated um, in the story that screens and technology have been in, in um, Kip's work so far. And I, I can only imagine the more that he grows as an artist and the more that we work together as, as a collaborative, um, you know, uh, in a collaborative way, that that would become more and more uh, uh, courageous, I guess, because um, he's, he's got a lot of courage.
0: <laughs> Nikki, you're doing this intense two-hour show. Um, is this going to help you prepare for the intense two-hour show you're doing with the MTC right? later <laughs> this year, uh, Girls and Boys? I saw, a, which I saw a production of in Adelaide. Oh yes, uh, and uh, beautiful piece of writing. Uh, emotionally harrowing piece of writing as well. Uh, Is there any kind of... Are there any parallels there between one show and the next?
2: I mean, speaking for that length of time is always good practice if you're about to do it again, I think. Um, I am on the shows that I'm not on, learning those lines in the dressing room, (laughs) so my brain is quite full of different um, worlds. Uh, But that's possible, I suppose. Um, The... The play is quite different uh, and completely um, asks a different thing of me as a performer. So I suppose um, any show that I undertake is preparation for the next show. That's just how I see um, the progression of theatre and myself as an artist. So, yeah, my tongue's getting a workout.
0: (laughs) In terms of next shows, uh, uh, Kip, who has adapted and directed Dorian Gray's uh, directing a, a Jekyll and Hyde for the STC later this year and I believe using some of the same kind of techniques as in this production. EJ, what are you expecting to see from that production?
1: Well, I mean, the amazing thing about Kip is that he um, he always surrounds himself with uh, people that are, are quite um, incredible artists and, and keep him honest and um, curious. And so I imagine that... I imagine that it will just be a combination of all the wonderful people in the room that will will shape a completely new version of how he wants to use technology and theatre in in what he terms as cinema theatre. Um, but I can only imagine, again, it's a kind of... Uh, the, the story of Jekyll and Hyde is, again, looking at um, the idea of good and bad and the binary um, of of what we expect humanity to look like. And so the kind of the the unpack, unpacking of that and also probably the decamp, the, um, the, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for, um, the looking at the falsehoods of the binary of, of our humanity as either good or evil, the kind of complexity of, um, and nuances that, um, yeah, that, that I think often aren't told in traditional stories, um, And classics and bringing that idea of pushing away from binaries using a classical text is always something that Kip
0: is interested in doing. If we're talking about binaries, one of the classic binary models that people think about is male versus female. Uh, this production of The Picture of Dorian Gray is cheerfully fucking with gender. Uh, <laughs> talk to us about that aspect of the production, what it feels like uh, to to consciously perhaps subvert audience expectations around kind of gender and, and roles.
2: It's immensely liberating um, as a female performer to step fully 100% inhabitant uh, inhabitantly into the shoes of men and men of the 19th century which was just not done at the time as you know um and then it's it's more liberating in the 21st century to then explode that gender uh, as the piece progresses and accumulates and make commentary on how gender is fluid and not binary and um uh, that Dorian is all of us, um, male, female, and everyone in between. Um, it's a, it's an exciting thing as a performer to blur those boundaries and to not feel um, restricted by any um, sense of
1: uh, representation. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's always good to fuck with shit, isn't it? Um, <laughs> It, i wish i I wish as a young person I got to see um a female performer play this kind of complexity mm-hmm. um, and it it is only now in my career that i um, have been given this opportunity to 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 build a shape of humanity that is more complex than um, often the female roles that are written, especially in traditional texts
3: mm-hmm. so
1: i I I think it's humorous also that I'm playing a lot of men. <laughs> um, the females in you know that I that that we play um, in Dorian Gray are, are actually quite simple. But that that there's a political kind of um, there's, there is a political statement within the piece um, about the the simple kind of shallow versions of the the women in Oscar Wilde's writing. Um, but yeah, I think it 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 just pulls forward. Um, the, the idea that, that power and influence and corruption are things that actually happen upon human, humanity, human beings rather than men or women. Mm. It's nice to push that aside and say, can we, can we think about the pillars of the piece rather than the, um, the male and female versions of it? And, I mean, honestly, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's really refreshing.
0: What do you think Oscar Wilde would make of the play?
2: I like to think he'd love it. I like to think he'd love it, Richard. <laughs> um, I yeah. I, it's sort of he in his um, introduction in the novel. He describes himself as um, Dorian being the character that he thinks he he wants to be. Basil being the character that he is and Lord Henry being the character that everyone else thinks that he is. And um, to see one person playing all of those characters, I feel like would really resonate with him as a person. And also the time, you know, um, the explosion of gender and our contemporary world. I feel like Oscar would be proud to sit in the audience of his own work and see it in the future
1: Hmm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, in one way, um, I know that Oscar likes really. Be- Oscar was a part of the aesthetics movement, so he liked beautiful things. And there are some beautiful things in this piece, but then there are some really ugly things. And it, um, <laughs> and it is, and it is brash and um, violent and messy. And so I wonder whether the 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 kind of lithe rhythmic beauty that he speaks in his sentences whether the fact that we pull them apart and and make and look underneath it whether he'd like that but then i think about i mean 10 years later after he he wrote this he was um put in jail for um for being hom- a homosexual and then um 2 years after that he passed away so I wonder, I, I just wonder what he thought of that novel um, himself, you know, in that time when he first wrote it and then the consequences of kind of, in a way, that novel outed a version of his um, homosexuality and, and mm-hmm. he was killed for it, essentially. So, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about his life and um, and how kind of the, the, it's there's a very sad... Um, the the repression in the piece uh, is is so desperately sad when you look at him and his life and and that certainly is very real and true in the piece there's a lot of repression across all the genders all the characters and so I, I hope that he would somehow feel that we had it um, we were honouring something about he, what he was saying but maybe not all all of it. <laughs>
0: In both the the novel and the play, Dorian reads what it is, is described as a poisonous book,
3: uh, <laughs> and
0: the picture of Dorian Gray was considered poisonous at the time, and it, indeed passages of it used in, in his trial and so forth that saw him sentenced to, to hard labour for two years. One, one of the things that fascinates me about the book today is we don't see it as poisonous, but it's become iconic, even for people who've never read it, Never seen the play, never seen the film. Something about the notion of a portrait that ages while its subject does not. has It's completely permeated popular culture and, and, and popular imagination. It's become um, a truly iconic thing. The, I, the friend I saw uh, Dorian Gray with on Tuesday night knew about the painting, but she didn't know anything about the story of... The, the play or the novel itself. So it it is fascinating to see something so iconic but simultaneously so unknown mm. brought to life. For me as an audience member, watching it unfold is delightful and fascinating. What's also delightful and fascinating is watching your performances and being able to see how you are swapping from character to character on stage. Talk to us about that aspect of... like. Usually you'd be backstage putting on a wig, changing a costume. It's all played out on stage. Do we ever see the real you on stage, either of you, when you are switching from character to character? Or are we always watching an actor?
2: That's a very interesting question. Um, There's cameras everywhere. And some, some performances I have actually taken a breath just to collect myself and thought wow, that was just me taking a breath, you know, in between moments. But also I think that is the um, meta-theatrical magic of the show that you see a kind of mercurial um, performer uh, moving in and out of character seamlessly, but at the centre of that is their own humanity and it is an athletic act each night and um, we both are kind of... uh, I think, drawing on deep um, parts of our reserves and um, energy to uh, sustain the illusion, um, particularly in such a long run. So, yeah, I think it's all in the eye of the beholder, but... um, there have been some moments where I have just inhaled and thought, everyone saw that, and was I in character? Knock on the door, and then I'm someone else, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's kind of beautiful in that way, that it exposes us and also um, reveals the internal um, of the performer. Yeah.
1: Adrian? Um, I think that this is the most uh, complicated thing I've ever performed and it had been a part of creating. Um, and I think uh, when I first started doing it, it was um, so technical and impossible that I was just, you know, I was able to fill the shapes as much as I could of the different characters and and make the transitions as clear as I could. and um, But it wasn't too close to me. Um, but now as i mean the re- something about repetition that is quite incredible <laughs> and um this is nearly our the you know our third season or something and 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 on and on it, it will go and um as yeah it's something about incredible thing about repetition that every time i ask these questions or, or put these characters on they um they do they get closer and and closer to um my kind of spine and my yeah, in my heart. So I think that um, I'm, I'm not too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure if that answers your question. But I think that either I'm becoming the characters, or the characters are becoming me. So this is something that's <laughs> happening, which is also intimidating. They're really big questions to ask every um, every night, but um, but is yet yeah, also a privilege because I love each and every one of them. <laughs>
0: Erin Jean Norval and Nikki Shields, thank you so much for joining us in the studio here at Triple R. The picture of Dorian Gray, the season has been extended until the 7th of August, which is a remarkable run and it is a remarkable piece of theatre with two remarkable performers in the role. So thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks, Richard. Thank you so much,
0: Richard. If you want a book to see the picture of Dorian Gray, which is showing in the Playhouse at Art Centre Melbourne, as I said, until the seventh of August, jump online www.artcentremelbourne.com.au. Erin Jean Norville and Nikki Shields, who I was just speaking to, are alternating in the role. They are both spectacular. So regardless of who you see on the night you attend, you will certainly be in for a treat. The Picture of Dorian Gray, based on the novel by Oscar Wilde, Wilde's only novel, adapted and directed by Kip Williams. It's a Sydney Theatre Company production and is presented in Melbourne by the Michael Castle Group. After its Melbourne season, which will have been running for almost two months by the time it closes, uh, the production is apparently headed off overseas. So tell your friends internationally to uh, check it out. RRR. The Melbourne Magic Festival is in full swing on now from the 27th of July through until the 27th of June through until the 9th of July. And one of the performers at this year's Melbourne Magic Festival has joined us in the studio. Josh Staley has a show called The Conjurer at the Card Table. Josh, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. How did you get into magic as an art form?
3: Yeah, I think I think everyone really gets into magic at some point in their life, and the story will probably sound quite familiar. You either get a magic kit when you're a little kid or you might visit a magic shop. For the uh, old is the wrong word, but for the people older than me listening, you might remember Bernard's Magic Shop uh, in Elizabeth Street, and that used to be my place to go. So in the school holidays, my brother was actually the first magician in the family, and uh, him and me and my mum would go to the Bernard's Magic Shop for school holidays, and he would go to the Serious magic magician section and I would go to the the pranks and jokes section and get like a a whoopee cushion or something, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, Eventually he grew out of it and and he does Iron Man's now and I do card tricks.
0: The fact that you've stuck with it is kind of interesting because as you say, yes, lots of people flirt with magic at some stage in their life. I certainly remember being maybe, I don't know, eight or nine and going, oh, magic acts, that looks fun. How do I do some of this? And then after a couple of weeks... I don't know, going back to dinosaurs or yeah, whatever exactly. you do. What was it about magic that made you stick with it?
3: Yeah, you know, I th- I think for me, it's it's two different things. Because when I perform magic, I kind of have a completely different experience to a spectator, right? So... As a spectator, when I wasn't sort of obsessed by the methods behind magic, the the wonder and the mystery of, of how things work and enjoying it from that perspective. And, you know, you see something impossible and you kind of have that, that 10 second feeling of like anything is possible in the world obsessed me. And then once you find out a little bit about magic, learning about all the sort of the methods and the construction behind it really got me interested because I've always been a fan of like puzzles and all that kind of stuff. So being able to create and build these routines really interested me. And then from there, you kind of branch off into, you know, enjoying the theater of things and liking writing and all that kind of stuff. So I I think it really combined, it. uh, combined it is a really good English word. I think it combined a few of my different interests and passions together into one thing, which was really fortunate for me.
0: In terms of magic as a performance mode, as an art form, let's break it down because there's different styles of magic, aren't there? there? Are. So some people will be expecting, if we're talking about magic, are we talking about grand illusions? Are we talking about intimate close-up work? Are we talking about mentalism and mind reading? What's your particular area of focus? Yeah,
3: so I'm, I'm pretty... Um broad in my interests. Uh, This year at the Mobile Magic Festival I'm doing a show called The Conjurer at the Card Table. So as you might expect uh, it's mostly focused on card material. Um, It's actually written specifically to explain sort of the skills behind how card material and broadly more magic principles work. So talking about how magicians might utilise memory, how they might utilise mathematics, all that different kind of psychology, misdirectional all those sort of secrets and and peek behind the curtain ideas. But the thing about the Mobile Magic Festival and the thing that I I think is really amazing about it you can actually go see any kind of magic show you might be interested in or that you don't even know exists. So we have a number of different showrooms that are actually specifically built and dedicated to all the different types of magic. So there's one room named after Houdini, which is for grand illusions and escapes. There's another one that is really intimate. Only 30 people can sit in there and see ultra-close-up magic. There's places for mentalism, for hypnosis, for escapes, for dangerous near-death situation and magic tricks. There's literally everything, and I think that's what's so exciting, is it? it's kind of like a smorgasbord of magic.
0: In terms of your own performance style, talk to us about how you develop your own unique take on magic tricks because I would imagine like a lot of artists you start out being influenced by other people's styles and presentation modes and and tricks and over time you hone your own take on all of that. So Yeah, it's exactly
3: correct. So, I mean, I'm not sure anyone can fact check this exactly but they believe uh, scholars think that there's been more content written about magic than any other topic uh, in the world because there's so many different people putting out their approach to a particular routine. So if we use Uh, you know, a handcuff escape, as an example. You know, the magician puts handcuffs on and he has to escape, like what you might see Harry Houdini have. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands of different people who have published and shared their approach to that routine. So, for me, it's kind of like picking something I'm interested in doing, wherever my inspiration has come from, and then you go through each of the other magicians who have come before me and look at their approach, and you kind of cherry-pick the things that you like from their routine, whether it's a particular part of the method or maybe, if we're talking about handcuffs, the type of handcuffs they use or... Maybe it's part of their script or presentation or whatever it is, and you kind of take bits and pieces from other people's uh, presentations of it, and then you start combining it together, and and then you slowly sort of figure out what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and then after sort of a few go-rounds and a few performances, it, it basically is no longer anything like those other things because you've now added so much of your own style and presentation into it that it has now transformed into something else. And then someone's going to see your work and the process sort of continues over and over again. So things like card magic that have been published since the 1300s in, in a book called Discovery of Witchcraft have gone through so many iterations that basically everyone has versions of of everything. And it's almost like a toolbox. You know, I have my different tools and techniques that I can then combine in different ways to make new or interesting things.
0: In terms of... I don't know, the the basic idea of a card trick. Mm -hmm. How does that become magical?
3: Right. Well, I mean, I think it all becomes down to what your description of magical is because obviously there's a lot of different ways to approach a card trick. If I asked you to pick a card and you shuffled it back into the deck and then I found it, That sort of is an oversimplification of what really could happen, because I could tell you I'm going to memorize the order of the cards, and then you tell me what your card is, and then I can tell you what number it is in the deck, because I've memorized the order of them. Now, that's not necessarily magic in the sense that it's impossible, but it is pretty magical that I could memorize the cards rapidly. But then on the other hand, I could put them on the table and tell you that a ghost is about to enter the room and cut to the cards, and they you know, eerily separate at the right position. Now, that is magical in the sense that it's impossible, but you also know that it's not really a ghost that's doing it, right? So I think the, f- the amazing thing and the fun thing about magic as an art form is that it really allows magicians and performers to sort of explore other things that they're interested in. So, if, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about mathematics. I can sort of tailor my card trick to be around that and share my passion with you. And I think that's what makes the best magicians the best magicians, that they're not just doing a card trick but they they're sharing a piece of themselves with you and they they're putting this other stuff on top of it so it's not just a card trick even though a card trick is really magical in my opinion but it's all about adding that those additional layers and that's where the theater and the storytelling and all that kind of stuff comes in and that's something that i'm really passionate about as well
0: it really strikes me that magic is akin to opera in in a way in that it's an art form which involves multiple other art forms so in opera you have music and singing and dance and uh and theater in magic you've got you've got got the actual the essence of the magical trick itself but then you've also got theater skills comedy skills exactly
3: yeah i mean i you know as a magician i have to wear many hats the bulk of my work is not really spent quote-unquote as a magician you know i might only do one hour show next week the rest of my day is spent being a marketing executive putting out all my promotional work being a writer doing scripts doing storytelling doing research all those different things so it really requires a massive amount of knowledge in a variety of different areas to put one thing together. And, I mean, if we're using the card trick example, it might only last one minute, but that one minute of time can take months and even years in some respects to compose that particular thing when you consider all the different elements that have to go into it. In terms of doing card tricks, how physically nimble do your hands have to be uh yeah, i mean uh, my, i'm i'm pretty passionate about sleight of hand and um i personally love practicing you know advanced difficult sleight of hand that that as a spectator you might never get to see and, and probably will never even get to appreciate but for me that's that's one of the most enjoyable things of it so i i keep my hands flexible and nimble and you know i, I have um hand exercises that i can you might have seen things like where you sort of squeeze two different bars together that builds up hand strength um, um, so I can execute all these slights. But with that said, there's plenty of magicians who maybe have gone through arthritis or have had a hand injury. Um, one of my friends was in a boating accident and he broke every bone in his hand and wrist and arm and lost feeling in it. Um, and they all still can do um, sleight of hand and magic because there's so many different ways to accomplish the same goal. So I think there's no real barriers in, in you know, you don't have good hands or you can't see or, or whatever it is to stop you from doing magic. There's a way to achieve anything, and there's some amazing magicians who, who do have what you would consider to be sort of a, an, an impossibility in, in whether they might even be missing a hand, but they can still do incredible things because they're so creative and driven to achieve those impossible things.
0: How much does psychology... Uh, inform your art form as well, knowing how to read an audience, how to read an individual, how to misdirect them.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two ways to think about it, because you'll see magicians come on stage and say, you know, think of a card, or you blinked when I said red, so you must be thinking of a red card. Oh, I just saw your lip move. And, you know, that isn't necessarily true all the time. That's just adding a presentation, a bit of a dramatic flair on top of it. But on a surface level, Maybe there's not a lot of psychology, but underneath that surface, there's a tremendous amount, whether it comes down to picking your audience and, you know, selecting the right volunteer and sort of gauging who's going to be the right for the right thing. Getting the crowd going, and like you said, misdirection, which is an integral to the routine that you're doing, you know, directing their attention in one place while you secretly do something in another place. So it's kind of like inbuilt psychology. I'm not sure every magician in the world has done, you know, a psychology degree and necessarily understands how the human brain works on that degree, but I think just naturally by getting good at magic, you get good at being able to deal with people and sort of understand what they're going to do and, and almost predict how they're going to do it.
0: Your show, The Conjurer at the Card Table, is on next week from Tuesday the 5th through to Saturday the 9th of July at the Cardini Cabaret, uh, 488 Swanston Street in Melbourne. For people who are thinking, I might come along and see Josh perform The Conjurer at the Card Table, give us a sense of what people can expect from the show.
3: What you can expect from the show is a peek behind the curtain. The show is about my journey to sort of arriving at the moment I'm at right now. So like I said, I used to go to Bernard's Magic. and I used to buy a lot of magic books and I have gone through the archives and pulled out a bunch of my favourite books including the titled Conjurer at the Card Table, a very mysterious uh, old book that I've been researching over the past few years. So the show is about exploring... The, this the secrets behind magic I suppose you know we're pulling back the curtain and talking about how I actually achieve some of the things I achieve because I think generally it's pretty interesting you don't really get to go to a lot of magic shows and find out how magic tricks work and I'm not trying to ruin the experience for people but instead trying to share a little bit of my passion outside of just what you see so we're going to talk about how I might memorize a deck of cards how I can use maths and numbers have a look at a few really old antique gambling and cheating devices um, all that kind of different stuff to let people in on my world a little bit and, and sort of have a different experience what they would usually get from a magic show. So I think if you're interested in seeing some really good sleight of hand or finding out a little bit more about magic or just want to have the best night out you can, that's the way you should come see the show
0: for yourself Josh in terms of magic as an art form is it disappointing to learn how tricks are done do you miss that sense of wonder that you presumably had as a child when you when you were going i don't know how they did it
3: i really do it's one of those things where once you find out how something works sadly you can never go backwards you know you kind of have to make a choice whether you want to be amazed by how it happens or be intrigued by how it happens. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad trade-off because I get to have a totally different experience. When I go see magic shows, I appreciate it in a way that most other people in the room never possibly could imagine. I get to watch a magician and, you know, look at them execute a a perfectly made slight and go, wow, you know, that was amazing, or or analyse a particular gimmick or apparatus they're using. So I can enjoy it from a totally different perspective. But nonetheless, when I go see a magician... And they fool me. They do something that I have no idea how it works. It is the most incredible feeling. And I think it's because it's so rare nowadays. The longer you do magic, the more methods you learn, the less, occurrence, uh, less occurrences you have of that experience. So when it happens, it's even stronger than what it might be for a regular person because it's such a rare thing. Before COVID started, I went to Japan and I went to a tiny little magic bar. There was only eight of us there and, and the guy performing didn't speak English. So there was a, a translator, a bartender was translating for me and he did a mentalism piece. He, he read me in my girlfriend's mind and I was so lost in the performance of it that I wasn't really trying to figure out how it worked. And he did something, and it just it just got past me. I had no idea what happened, and I really didn't want to know. He, he was very nice, and we were chatting afterwards through the translator and he He offered to explain it to me, and I had to say, you know, please don't tell me because I really wanted to just enjoy this moment of not knowing how it worked because it made me feel like the other seven people in that room, and it was such a good experience. So I think magicians are always kind of on the hunt for that.
0: Are there any other magicians at uh, the Melbourne Magic Festival this year that you would recommend?
3: So I think the unsung hero of the Melbourne Magic Festival is Tim Alice. So Tim Alice is the president of the Australian Institute of Magic, and he essentially is the backbone of the festival. So he uh, puts almost the entire thing together. He has a very small team helping him, and he is easily one of the very best magicians in Australia, and a lot of people would agree, in the world. So he's doing a show called The Magic Menu, and essentially the concept is that... The audience gets to pick uh, what kind of stuff he's going to do. So you have a little a, a menu, um, and it's divided into sort of the opening part of the show, the middle part of the show, and the end part of the show. And the audience get to choose based on a sort of a little description, and then he tailors the show to that description. He's then taken that concept further, and we're putting on a show together with a few other uh, magicians called Magic Sports which is inspired by theatre sports. So the idea is, if you're unfamiliar with it, we play a variety of games, which is basically improvised magic. So I might come out ready to do a card trick, and there'll be a bowl of suggestions from the audience that are emotions. So during the trick, uh, the host will pull out a suggestion, and then I'll have to change the trick to that. So if it's emotions, for example, it'll be, do the trick angry, so then I'll have to start doing the trick angrily, and then it will be, do it sad and do it happy- um or it might be location so you have to change around the location doing or some of the most fun ones are where the audience will give you props and on the spot you have to make a trick with those props so at the start of the show i might be given an umbrella a lipstick and a pair of earphones and you have to come up with a routine using that and it's the most fun um we have at the magic festival and it's easily one of the best shows in my opinion so if you want to see something unplanned and at just hand on heart, it's not a magic light, genuinely is unplanned in every way. Um, if you want to see something chaotic and hilarious, that is the show to see easily. And it's almost sold out, so you should get in quick on that one.
0: For more info about the Melbourne Magic Festival, which is on now until the 9th of July, jump online, melbournemagicfestival.com. And to see Josh Staley's show, The Conjurer, at the card table, it's happening next week from Tuesday the 5th through to Saturday the 9th of July, 8pm at the Cardini Cabaret, 488 Swanson Street in Melbourne. And again, info and booking details at melbournemagicfestival.com. Josh, thanks so much for coming in.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed a little a little intro into the, the show. Um, if you guys are planning on coming along, if you use the code word MAGIC, M-A-G-I-C, you'll get 30% off just for the people listening right now. Um, the show's almost sold out, so I wouldn't wait to put that code word in. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at
4: rrr.org.au.
0: Kate Salon is the artistic director of Raucus, who are an ensemble of 14 people with diverse bodies, diverse minds and diverse imaginations. Kate, lovely to have you in.
4: Oh, it's so nice to be here, Richard.
0: You're leaving Raucous oh, 22 years after you established the company, you are you're you're moving on.
4: That's right. That's right. It's um it's it's really a bittersweet moment. But, um, yeah, 22 years is a long time, and it's time to hand the baton over.
0: Yeah. But you're leaving on a high with a brand new work, Here We Are Amongst You, which has been uh, a few years in development. This small thing called a pandemic got in the way.
4: That's right. That's right. Um, it's a it's a really lovely work to um, finish off with the company because, in a way, it feels like um, it's a work where you get to see the company the way that um, I experience the company in the rehearsal room and the way that we are together um, as a group of very eclectic people who um, create together and play together um, and it feels like this work really celebrates the way we are in the room and shares that
0: with an audience. Before we talk about Here We Are Amongst You in more detail, take us back to 2020. Um, No, hold on. More than 2000, 2020. Like 2000. Started, 2000. Yeah, yeah 2000, 22 yeah. years ago. <laughs> 22 years. I can't do maths. Yeah. Terrible at maths. Um. So, yeah, 22 years ago in 2020, Raucous was established as an ensemble. How did that all come about?
4: Well, I mean, the lovely thing, and I love this about how Raucous came about, that we would, it was never the intent to start a company. Um, and if someone had told me, if we you know, time travelled and said you're going to, in 22 years, you will have established a company that would have made all this work together. Um, I would have been very shocked because actually I was just employed to um, direct a small show to open the National Cerebral Palsy Conference, and at that time I was working in a lot of uh, drama programs for people with a disability, and in those programs I was like, there's some artists in here there, you know, there's some really truly incredible artists that I'm working with. And so I just proposed that, you know, from all the different drama programs that I was working in and, and um, friends were also working in, that we gathered a group of people together who could do, who could make this little event for the um, Cerebral Palsy Conference. I also was got some friends from the VCA to come and do it with me. And so it was just... Um, and then we made a small 15-minute opener for this conference. And it was so exciting that we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great... to to actually make a full work together. So at that time I was an emerging artist and I applied to Next Way Festival and got a Kickstart grant and proposed this project and we made a show. And again we went, it's not finished, we need to make another show. And so as we just kept making shows from a desire to... We had it was unfinished business. We kept wanting to make work and work together. And as we wanted, as that happened, the structures around us grew, and we became an organisation, and we incorporated, and we got some funding, and here we are, twenty two years later.
0: And twenty two years later, but still loving the company it 's yeah. not like you're leaving because you're you 're embittered or burnt out or anything like that it 's you're drawing a line under it but moving on with an enormous amount of respect and admiration for the ensemble you work with and the company you founded
4: absolutely like uh, those they're deep um, precious creative relationships it 's such a privilege to work with people over a long time but it's also it is a long time and i think it's um I always wanted to leave when I still loved it and I still um, was really interested in the work and interested in, the, in making the work. So, but it, but you also know in your you also know when, as an artist as well, you need time. It's a lot to run a company, um, and your the creative pace is is in some ways constant, and you constantly keep going and imagining the next work as you're doing the work itself. And there comes a time when, as an artist, you need to actually be able to stop for a bit and go what is it, you know, replenish and reestablish, but I'm still deeply fond of um, of the company and in deep awe of those artists that I work with.
0: Of the, the 14 members of the ensemble, uh, how many of them are from the original, the very first work?
4: We have one, like, who's been there the whole 22 years, but then we have a, a group of about five or six who've been there 18-plus um, years, so there's... There's people who have been there for a long time, um, and I think the newest members have been there for six years. So people come and they stay. <laughs> it's um it's very hard to leave, as I'm now discovering. Um, um, and and the it's not only the ensemble, it's also the creative team of um the designers. We've worked together over 18 years, so. That's pretty special too.
0: Which means you have a remarkably adept artistic shorthand together with both performers and the the designers.
4: Yeah, it's like I think people come into our rehearsal room and think we're speaking in code. We had a a student from VCA watch us work and he was like, but how did everyone know what to do? And he thought there was some sort of magic. um, But we just have been together for so long, we kind of just know how to do it. And, um, yeah, he, he was really going... It felt like something magical happened, but I didn't know how it all happened. Yeah.
0: Having been in a room and watching uh, the Raukes Ensemble devising at one point, I can imagine that because I remember a sense of thinking it's like they're telepathically linked. People know kind of... uh, without having to, to spell it out or know it. There was something electric in the room, a shared electricity.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love the most about it. And one of our ensemble members talks about it like um, mycelium. I think, you know, the the funk that we're all connected underground and someone makes a move and someone else feels it over here. And, um, yeah, there's deep connection and deep listening that we do as an ensemble together. And we do a lot of ensemble training as part of our creative process. And, um, yeah, it is a true ensemble. And this work that we've made... Um, probably is the most ensemble it feels like a really big ensemble work
0: what did you want to set out to make with here we are amongst you
4: well it's interesting cuz we conceived of the project in a time pre-pandemic and um and and actually just start we'd had very before we went into the period that we went to we just we'd only just started to touch on it and we began by kind of asking ourselves you know what do we feel like the world needs right now? And what matters to us? And um, if we were going to create a gift for the audience of this time, what would that look like? And what would that feel like? And so we, um, we explored that. And then of course, um, you know, 2020 happened. So this was just at the end of 2019. So right before we went into lockdown. So then we had, we asked that question again in lockdown over Zoom, and we asked it again in 2021. And, Um, And our answer's kind of crystallised, but it's actually interesting if you look at our responses in 2019, it's not wildly different from the work we make. The thing that's changed the most is just the joy of actually being together and what that means, and I think we're so excited when we could become back in the room together that the show is full of the exuberance and joy of just actually being together, and also we share that with an audience because we're so delighted to have an audience with us.
0: You're presenting the show in the round,
4: mm. so you sit. You sit. This it's one circle, so you sit in a circle, and the action happens in front of you and also behind you. But um, there's it's not there's no audience participation, so you're very much invited to just uh, receive the work. You don't have to be part of the work. Um, and you're not lit at any time or asked of anything at any time, but you're immersed in it. You are inside the work and you can feel the wind of performers running behind you and you can hear them breathe and they're very close to you in a socially distanced and COVID safe way, of course. But um, but you can feel, you can get to see them because I, I really wanted people to see what I see and that's I get to see them work really up close and the the detail and the subtlety and the you know, what we were talking about before, how connected they are, you can see the ripples, because if you're that close, you can see the ripples of them responding to each other through in the space. So it's quite beautiful to watch.
0: It sounds almost like um, an opportunity for the audience, the, the closest that the audience will get to being in the rehearsal room, to actually to, to sit and and share in this intimate way. The, the not necessarily sharing in the creation of the work but but almost living the work alongside the the artists
4: yeah that was our hope because our our rehearsal room is um it's a really special and precious space and it's it's a space where you know you've got 14 very different people with very different ways of being in the world and thinking about the world and processing information and somehow we managed to negotiate and work together and find ways of translating um, conversation so everyone can participate and understand, but we also just like really love being together and it's very joyous and very rowdy and we go on tangents like no business and, um, and it's actually a, a really beautiful place to be, full of love and care and a bit of play and mischief, I would say. They're very rowdy. trying to...
0: <laughs> that's the name raucous. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's right. It's very well, you know, that's, that was the first word when we we're going, what, what are we? We're raucous, you know, so that's, um... Yeah, so you get to experience that when you, as an audience member and that's um, I think as a final show it's really lovely to go, you get to, to share what I've loved and see and get to experience um, and an audience gets to have a bit of a go experience of that too.
0: I started this interview by describing uh, Raucous, the, the ensemble, uh, as 14 performers with diverse minds, bodies and imaginations. Talk to us about that definition of the company because, uh, and how, have, how has the way you describe the company changed over time?
4: Yeah, so um, because there's 14 different people and everyone identifies in different ways and um, some uh, people in the company um, proudly proudly carry a label, Um, you know, uh, we've got someone who wears a sash that says autistic pride, we've got some people who identify as having a disability, some people who identify in all sorts of ways, and some people who don't like that label or or don't identify with those words. So um, it's really hard to find a way of describing a group of people who are very eclectic and have very different ways of being a neurodiverse and... um, and we want to celebrate all of that, so that's what we came up with. And it might change, but we, you know, we used to describe ourselves as a company of performers with and without disability. And as the nature of the as the people in the company have changed, and we've uh, and we've um, kind of sort of ourselves in a more nuanced and expansive way. We're all um, that's what we've come up with, and I imagine that will continue to change. And the next interview there might be a, another way of describing the company, which is also what I love about the company. It's, it's changing and evolving, and and working out how to describe something that's quite hard to describe.
0: It feels like it would be a very liberating company to work with because you've got so many different people and different energies and ideas and enthusiasms in the room, as opposed to just a trad theatre company where you've got, like, I don't know, three cisgendered kind of actors or something, Uh there is an unpredictability to Roarke's, and that is palpable in the work the company creates.
4: Yeah, there's a little bit of anarchy as well in there, you know, and and it's it's an interesting role as a director because um, you know, and I think that's what's interesting about Roarke's. It's deeply rigorous and very refined in the and the work, but also anarchic and rule breaking and free, and so it's got this kind of um, you know, you're in safe hands because they're very professional ensemble, but they're also love to break rules and play, but they're from a place of, of deep listening. Um, yeah, I love it. As a, It makes me the best director I can possibly be because people are, you know, I never had to think about the language I use as much as when I work with Raucous because people go, when you say, you know, I use all sorts of metaphors and people going, do you really want me to you know, do that? And I go, no, no, I was describing it like this. So, you know, I, I think it's made me the best director and I love the challenge of it. Of finding ways in for everyone.
0: That notion of making you the best director uh, intrigues me as well, because you are directing the energy and the ideas of the company. They are the ensemble are coming up with the ideas, and yep. you're. It, it's almost like you're the channel the ideas flow through, which gives them a, a kind of a structure. Perhaps. Yeah,
4: yeah. So I kind of think about like um, you know, I set up the playground, or or the designers and I, we would kind of set up a playground they play in it and we watch and then, you know, it's like I kind of take what they do and edit and shape and return it back to them. And, um, you know, they have a joke cause we will be, especially when we used to, in the pre COVID times when we take three years to do a work, you know, I'd say, ah, oh, you know that thing you did like three years ago in the, in that moment with that person, I go, how do you remember that? And they've got no memory of it, but, um, yeah some somehow it's just stuck it's gone in my notebook they joke joke about my notebook they go oh it's got in the notebook <laughs> we'll see it 3 years later
0: except now you won't yeah because well, uh, you're moving on that's so right. what will happen to the notebook is that going to be i don't know entrusted to the new co-artistic directors yeah Katrina Cornwall and Morgan Rose.
4: i'm sure they'll have their own processes and i wonder what uh, you know they, they they might video things who knows how they'll work um and um all i know is that the ensemble had a, had a very strong role in choosing the new artistic directors, and um, I'm excited to see what they... And they get the best job in the
0: world. <laughs> in terms of Here We Are Amongst You, it feels like you've made a gift for the the arts audience in Melbourne, but also a, a, a gift for the company as well, a, a farewell gift from you.
4: Yeah, it definitely feels that way, and it was so lovely to share it with an audience last night because... Um, You know, we made it for an audience and so to be actually, you know, we prepared the present and then to actually be able to to see, to invite the audience and and give them the gift and have them receive it and people really um, were very open and very warm and generous in response so that was lovely.
0: Here We Are Amongst You by Raucous is now showing until the 10th of July at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall, on the corner of Queensbury and Errol Streets, North Melbourne. You can book by going to artshouse.com.au or, if you prefer, you can pick up the phone at 9322-3720. That's 9322-3720 or artshouse.com.au to book to see Here We Are Amongst You by Raucus on until the 10th of July. Um, Tickets are $35, if you can, $20 $20 uh, uh, plus a booking fee, uh, and also black ticks for 10 bucks as well. Yeah. Uh, and on Saturday the 9th of July, there'll be a tactile tour and audio described performance yes. as well.
4: Yeah, and all shows are also interpreted as well, so that's good to know as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, artshouse.com.au to book to see Here We Are Amongst You by Raucous. Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Oh, with you too.